now that I'm out and everyone's like, oh, great, you're trans. And I got it. And everyone cheered me on for like a year. And then everyone just moved on with their lives. Like, now what do I do? <laughs> like, like, everyone's very supportive at first. And they're like, okay, cool. Okay, we get it. Okay. <laughs> we get it. You're, you're, we're, you're no longer that interesting. What now? Hello, my name is Kay Anderson, and you are listening to Lost Spaces, the podcast that mourns the death of queer nightlife. Every episode, I talk to a different person about a venue from their past, the memories that they created there, and the people that they used to know. So I had me a bit of an aha moment fairly early on into this week's conversation. And it's really snappily summed up in the phrase that my guest uses, which is go along to get along. And what this means for me, so for most of my childhood, I had to, or I chose to just suck it up and accept that things were a bit shitty and a bit crap, but in the back of my mind, just holding on to this thought that one day it would all be better. And so I survived the moment by just tolerating shittiness. But in this conversation and in the weeks up to this conversation and since this conversation, I am realizing that I've kind of brought that mindset into my adult life. And so I tolerate all of these really shitty things far beyond what is reasonable because I kind of don't think I deserve any better. Anyway, I've overshared there, but that is all to say that I got quite a lot out of this conversation and I think you will too. So... Who is my guest? Well, my guest this week is the comedian Gina Bloom, who had a bit of a strange request. She wanted to talk about queer spaces that she had never even been to, but which existed in her small town Florida 90s childhood as these almost fabled places where the queers went. You know, those kind of places that everyone in your school knows about and they gossip about and they say, ooh, Mrs. McGranger. I don't know why I said Mrs. McGranger. Mrs. McGranger went there on the weekend. She must be a lesbian. So I got to find out what those spaces meant to her, even though she'd never stepped foot in them. We also talk about midlife crises, sugar daddies and how to get them, and what it's like to know that you're not meant for that small town, but actually meant for the big city. to talk about this difference in the world today versus the world that you grew up in in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And I keep slipping into this weird romanticization. I just said that wrong. Romantic. Anyway. Yeah. I I keep slipping into this thing where it's like, it's quite nice to be part of this self-contained community Mm -hmm. that doesn't have a lot of outside influence. Sure. With, with like forgetting all of the horrible things that comes with that because you don't have 
any gateway to to outside worlds. Right. But there's something kind of nice and naive and innocent about that. I think there is a safety in knowing your peer group really well, right? And in knowing basically who you are dealing with. I think that's like, you know, it's always been like the the joke, you know, in queer communities that you end up dating all of your friends and you end up dating all of your friends' exes and then like it's just like this incestuous thing. And like we're losing that as as we gain wider acceptance and that's generally a good thing, but we lose something. It's not it's not unusual to feel like some nostalgia or some like wistfulness of the past slipping away. I think that's I think that's normal. I think that's natural. I think that's that, that's for anybody. That's for like when you hear like you know Stephen King like a Stephen King novel and he just like gushes on about like the you know the music of the 1950s and it's like yeah we get it you grew up and you liked fucking Elvis we get it dude. like it's fine but like for him that's the world he can't go back to so he mm. he romanticizes it and for us it was these like very like insular kind of like and it was kind of fun because it was kind of illegal right it felt like you, we were doing mm-hmm. something naughty you know, we were clandestine and things weren't well known and like we had to like do it in the shadows and things. That's that's kind of yeah. fun. There's something to that. There's something to being like on the outside. There's like a there's a fun quality to that. I think, yeah, it speaks to that really primal nature of human beings about fitting in, right? About belonging and yes. being part of something. And that's probably why so many young men are getting radicalised on Reddit nowadays because of that pull. Mm -hmm. Sure. But I don't have anything in my life that I feel that. Like, I don't... I don't feel like part of any internet communities, and I guess that's where things are nowadays. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that may just be like a... like a function of our ages, too. (laughs) And the fact... Let's not get ages now. I know lots of old people who are radicalized on the internet as well. (laughs) Oh, sure. And, like, people older than us. Like, it's kind of famous in America, at least, about, you know, your uncle getting radicalized on Facebook. But I think that there is something to be said about the age we are right now, you and I. Like, we're, you know, we're adults, but we're not, like... We're not adult adults, right? We're not, like, ready to retire. Wait, wait, wait. Are you a geriatric millennial like me? Yes, pretty much. Yes. So like we're we're like we're we're getting into the midlife crisis era of our lives, right? And it's funny because like I remember like watching stuff when I was a kid and like boomer stuff, like boomer entertainment and it was all about midlife crises and I was like, what the fuck is a midlife crisis? And now that I'm at like midlife, I'm like, oh yeah, I get it now. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, totally tracks. But I think what where we're at in our lives is that we're active in our communities, we're adults, we're, you know, we're at the height of our, like, professional powers. Oh, shit. And, like, that is, yeah, unfortunately, yes, we are. (laughs) Like, that's where you're, like, least connected to, like, that's where you're the most connected to other people, I think, in an interpersonal way. Mm. That's where you're at your height of, of, like, your your interpersonal life. Whereas when you get a little older, you want to retire, your world shrinks a bit. And when you're young... You just don't have the money or the agency to get out and do things in the world. So you're so online is basically your life. So like we're at unfortunately the prime of our lives right now. <laughs> and this is how we choose to live it. That's why I guess I rethink some things. Yeah. Yeah, now I'm just miserable. That's why people have midlife crisis because they're like, I'm the best I can be and this is how I choose to live it. Oh my God, what did I do? It's all downhill from here. Like I can get lower. 
I know, right? (laughs) Not a comforting thought, no. So you've talked a bit about feeling a part of that secret club of the queers. Mm. Let's go back to when you had your first inkling that you may not be... May not be exactly what my mom wanted. Yeah. Yeah, um, Oh, oh, I wasn't going to put it like that, but okay. But yeah, there was very much, very much that. Um, I mean, I had those inklings when I was quite young. When I was like maybe 11 or 12, it started to dawn on me. And like I was watching MTV and like I was seeing like the video girls and like I wasn't reacting with the same way that my friends were. Which video girls? Just so I'm just, you know, just setting this up. So when I was very young, it was like the heavy metal stuff. Oh, okay. It was like the very famous cherry pie video where the, the guys are like, hosing down this giant woman with a fire hose and she's just like spinning around, stuff like that, right? So like that, um, that like very early 90s, you know, pre-grunge stuff before music got serious was very much like a sexual awakening for me, but not in the way that it was for my friends. It was like, oh, I love the way she looks. I would love to do that someday. Like that was, that was what I was seeing. I'm like, and stupid shit like Baywatch. Like, oh my God, like, that's amazing. How could I... I need to move to L.A. and put on a red bathing suit and rescue idiots. Like, that was it, was, it was weird. It was confusing, but it was exciting, and, like, it was very much a lot of, like, conflicting things all at once. Because by then, by the, you know, late 80s, early 90s, you know, gay was a pretty well-established paradigm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we knew. We knew gay, lesbian, we knew bisexual. We didn't really know trans all that well. Like, we knew that there were transgender people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were mostly objects of ridicule in the pop culture and, you know, somewhat to be feared outside of that. At least that's what was the message we were getting. And, like, Florida was a weird place to grow up because it was very conservative, but there's also a very heavy drag culture there. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, this traditional southern drag, which was also kind of conservative, it's a very strange mix, right? Like, I knew this drag queen in Central Florida, and when she was out of drag in her, like, regular presenting boy form, it was very much this, like, traditional, like, southern gay man. Like, it was basically like Lindsey Graham or Truman Capote. Like, you, it was this, like he was almost sexless out of drag. Mm-hmm. You knew he was queer, but he was very genteel and almost, like, you know, very soft about you didn't want to offend people with his gayness too much. Mm. That was part of the drag scene there. There was there was this other like kind of like rebel drag scene there that I you know I was also a part of growing up. But um, and I'm getting off topic again here. But like, <laughs> um, but like the discovery of all of that is it's scary and it's weird and it's confusing, but it's also really exciting because like I was discovering things about myself and I was discovering that I was that I wasn't going to be like everybody else. And, like, that was cool to me because I didn't want to be. Like, Mm. I had always been skeptical Mm. of everybody else. I'd always been skeptical of, like, the conservative Christian right-wing assholes that, you know, the jocks in school. I'd always been skeptical of, like, their parents and, like, the, you know, even the government. Like, it was a very conservative time in Florida. Wait, you were, like, a five-year-old skeptic of the government five-year-old skeptic yeah yeah i was not five but like when i was like maybe 11 i started to you know it it began at home i began at home my my dad you know painted a world that was not congruent with reality 
So, like, I learned from a young age to be suspicious of, of people in power. Like he, like, he would say things that we're doing great, and then all of a sudden we had to move because he, he spent all of the money. Ah, uh, okay. So he, we learned from a young age that authority was untrustworthy. Uh-huh. And the fact that I was becoming a person that wasn't like everybody else was already something that was appealing yeah. to me. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It was a relief. Like, okay, great. I'm not going to end up like all my friends. I'm not going to get married and have four kids and work at the fucking fertilizer factory that everyone works at. Not like, that there's awesome anything wrong with working at the fertilizer factory for anyone who's listening that works at the fertilizer Not that there's factory. any... Exactly. <laughs> now, obviously, I'm an adult. People work hard at the fertilizer factory. But when you're 14, 15... Of course, yeah. That's your I'm thought. Like, I am like, getting out of here. I'm getting out of here. I don't want to work at the fertilizer factory. I, I'm going. And I want to pick up on that, what you've said about being a relief and about being like, oh, I'm, I'm special. Yes, thank God. Before right. you'd realized that, had other people realized it in you? Like, were you already oh, yeah. a bit of an outcast, already a bit? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was very slight growing up. Um, oh, telltale sign, yeah. Yes, telltale <laughs> signs, very small, very, very effete. I cried very easily. I was not athletic at all. I was very, very book smart, but like very emotional too. No, I was, it was a readily apparent to just about everybody at a certain age. But then that stopped. Like there was a point when I became old enough to learn the game a little bit, to learn how to hide. Like, ah. It's interesting. Like Once I learned I was queer, I also learned how to not look queer. Ah. Once I figured out that I was queer, I was like, oh, I know how to cover this yeah. now. Like I know what I'm doing wrong. I know why I'm getting beat and up. How, how do you cover it? Like for me, it was like, it was finding like a straight identity that I could cosplay effectively. And that for me was the Joker. Like I became like a class clown type. Oh, and oh like that I thought you meant the Joker from the comic. I was like, well, I'm no, not, sure not he's like, not like, <laughs> yeah, not that Joker, but like the class clown yeah. to be like the funny person. Uh-huh. And like that became like my like way to like get by. Like I didn't want to, like, I knew I was queer in some degree. That was fine. Like I was going to get to college and I was going to figure it out. But even that didn't really work out because yeah. then I, just, I kept putting it off. But, um, but that was my thinking back then was I would get to college, I'd figure it out. So like I learned to do like comedy and be funny and I became like known for being a good writer. So like I was very much, you know, drama club adjacent, but still <laughs> trying to present Hold on, drama club. That sounds pretty queer to me. That's pretty gay. Yeah, I was drama club vice president. So you know, that wasn't so how good were you at hiding? Exactly, it wasn't completely successful. But I didn't. Also, didn't. I also didn't come out as trans until like 2015, which is like well into my Ooh. adulthood. Because trans is a whole different thing. Like I had come out as like like. I was sort of, like, soft out most of my life. Like, I told, like, most of my, like, relationships I was bi. Uh, I didn't tell my my straight male friends because, A, I didn't want to hear it from them, and, like, I didn't give a shit what their opinion was anyway, so they could think whatever they wanted. But, like, to, like, my romantic relationships, I was very transparent about it, and to, like, my female friends and my queer friends, like, they knew. Because I went to art school, and it was, like, a you know, it was very it was a very accepting place. But trans was a whole different thing. Trans was like, you know, you had to physically change yourself. And like that was a a level that I couldn't code switch my way out of. So I was very, you know, reticent to go that final step for a long time. 
Okay, there's a lot here. Can we go back? I'm a complex to, lady. To, <laughs> I definitely want to talk more about that, but I don't want mm-hmm. to lose the threads of the things that we've already talked about. Yes. I want to talk about surviving. Yes. What you said to me about like rationalizing your experience when you're in high school and saying like, okay, mm-hmm. it's okay because as soon as I go to college, that's when my life can begin. That's, that's when, when things can happen. That's when everything will happen. Yes. And that's, that's very similar to what happened to me when I was young. Like, it's okay. Mm-hmm. I'll just get through high school. I'll just keep my head down. Exactly. I'll just do things. Yeah. And recently I've been thinking a lot about how that's actually a terrible thing to have because now in situations that are a bit shit in my life Mm -hmm. as like a full-grown adult oh I felt weird saying as a full-grown adult I will just be like it's okay I'll just see this through I'll just survive it I'll just like carry on I can I can manage this rather than putting my boundaries and saying no this is unacceptable um yeah, I'm not sure if there's a question there. I think it, I just had a light bulb moment when you said it. No, I, f- I fully agree. And like a lot of those go along to get along instincts serve me poorly mm. because I, I didn't have boundaries in relationships because I had this whole adolescence of just putting up with shit. Mm. And like, you know, when I would get into adult situations where people were, were taking advantage of me or like I was in a situation where that... I should have stood up for myself better. I was already practiced at getting by. Mm. I was like, okay, well, I know how to do this. I grew up this way. This is fine. I can handle this. And I shouldn't have. You're right. It sucks. We shouldn't have to go along to get along. But that was the reality. And I think, you know, you see like even older people where they, you know, there's like this respectability politics around queerdom where like, you know, you can't. You can't act too gay because mm. it will offend the straights. Mm. I think a lot of that comes from having had to grow up that way. Mm. And and uh, understanding your worth based on the perceptions of those heterosexual people around you. Exactly, yeah. yes. Because I'm still a bit like that, like, oh, I just play things down. Sometimes I don't yeah, understand it's... if I'm just not overly flamboyant or if I'm just pushing it down <laughs> no I, and I think that there's there's being gay and there's just being yourself like I think it's okay to not be overly flamboyant if that's yeah but what if like your personality. what if I really am and I've just been pushing it down but all this time when I came out in 2015 I I was very flamboyant I was very into it and it was fun and I had a lot of fun with it but like I eventually equalized and mm-hmm. became more of the person I already was to begin with And, like, now I'm just a lady. I'm just an L.A. lady. (laughs) Nobody really misgenders me, um, whether it's because of, you know, some sort of convenience of physiology or just because L.A. is just a nice city that they don't do that here. You know, I just get treated like any other lady in L.A. of a certain age. Like, I'm not not 25, so I'm not getting hit on every minute of the day, but I'm also, you know, not entirely invisible. I'm just... I'm just one of the gals. And, but you prefer lady over woman? Um, <laughs> or is it just because it's alliterative when you say L.A. lady? It's, a, it's alliterative, <laughs> yes. It's alliterative. It just sounds better. That's all. I don't have a preference. Woman is fine. I feel like you can't say lady without saying lady. Like you have to lady, really yeah. ramp it up, I think. If you're going to use that word, commit to it. Yeah, Yeah, you got to really like lay on the Austin <laughs> Powers with it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's just it's just like 
just me being verbally whatever. Just showing some flair. That's it. Ooh, I don't yeah. have a preference for it, one way or the other. Let's talk about that uh, when you came out being flamboyant. Mm. What did that flamboyancy look like? When I came out in 2015 and, like, I was very, you know, very active in the queer community. I was living in New York City at the time. Mm -hmm. And New York is a great city to be gay for the first time in. It's so much fun, right? Like, you can just go and do it all. And, like, I did it all. Like, I did, like, the pride parades and I was, I dressed very, very slutty. And, like, I had, like, very, like, public sexual affairs with different people of many genders. And, like, I remember just, you know, being very, like, Brooklyn ho about it. And it was great. And I had a lot of fun. It was just, it was it was freedom. It was freedom in a way that I had never experienced in my life. And I was in a place at that time, you know, pre-Trump, where freedom was celebrated. Mm -hmm. Like, we thought we had a tiger by the tail in 2015. We thought we were going to get Hillary in there. You know, the right wing was dead. We wouldn't, we, we had no idea what was, what was to come. We had no clue. And like that year, that like first year was great. And like, you know, I had affairs with like rich older men. You know, it's basically a sugar baby. And I thought, well, this is amazing. I never got this kind of attention. Like, And do you still have their numbers just out of interest? I, you know, I, I, they're, you know, they could be a backup. I may need them someday. So. Oh, okay. All right. I'll find my own. But like, no, there was this guy and he was um, an executive at a hedge fund and he had like a penthouse apartment, you know, on the Upper West Side. And like, we were having sex in front of his window overlooking like all of New York City. I was like, God damn, dude. I'm doing this. This is awesome. I made this happen. Like, I'm looking over Manhattan getting railed and by a guy that is worth, you know, $100 million. Cool. This is this is the life but for hold me. hold on. You're saying this is flamboyant. I feel like this is just a Wednesday. Yeah. No, I would say that that, that freedom led me to being so open that I was just willing to do, you know, whatever. The flamboyance was more about just being, you know, in my world, being comfortable in my world, being out in a queer community and, and then also out in the greater mm -hmm. New York City. Just being out in the summer looking very femme, very, like, Basically very queer. put together and very gay yeah. and, like, just kissing people and having the grandest of times. It was, it was like, 2015 was a great year. Then I started doing stand-up comedy, and Trump got elected, and things took a whole weird turn after that. But, like, that first year out was, that was my year of, of hoeing. <laughs> Wait, so are you saying that if Trump hadn't been elected, you would still be hoeing, or are those things not connected? No, I think they're connected to some degree. I think that, I, I mean, I still hoed. I still slutted. Like, I didn't stop well, I mean, necessarily. you're a human being, yeah, of course. Like, I had to keep it going. But, like... There was a feeling in Brooklyn in the in the years before Trump, like in you know neighborhoods like Bed Stuy and neighborhoods um, blanking on the place where all the warehouses are right now. I can't believe I can't remember it. Where like it felt like the party was never going to stop. Mm -hmm. It felt like there's a sexual revolution. Trans people were out, and it, it felt like at the time it was always just gay summer every day, whether it was cold or not. Like I lived in like this basically converted warehouse where they just built these little flats into 
into the walls. You just like you just like stack this all like on top of each makeshift other. Makeshift flimsy walls. Yeah, like little oh, makeshift God. flimsy walls, and it was like and like everyone was something that wasn't like straight and white, and it was great. And I felt like I could live here forever. And then when Trump got elected, and we realized that the world was not so different than we thought it was. Like it wasn't that mm-hmm. Trump showed the world was at least the U.S. Trump showed the U.S. was very different than we thought it was. No, Trump showed that the U.S. was the same. Mm. We thought we thought the U.S. had changed, and then Trump got elected. Like, nope. Yeah, it's still the same. Like, this is still the same country. This is still if they can elect him, this country has not evolved. Mm. And I think that chilled us a lot. Maybe not in any direct way. I don't think anyone's like, oh, Trump's like, we have to stop fucking. But I think we became more politically motivated, and like we understood that there was a, a much more serious existential threat to us so like the party stopped because it had to stop yeah yeah you needed to sober up in order to get your weapons exactly ready. yeah exactly <sighs> how did we get here hmm. <laughs> how i this is how i think babe this is, what, this, is like, this is just this is what's like having a conversation with me. it's okay i'm good at being like let's go back so yeah. let's go back you said going to college Mm-hmm. That was the time you were going to come out, and then you didn't. You put it off. And then I didn't. Right. So what happened, I mean, this was sort of like symptomatic of being a, a poor person in the U.S. I got into art school. I was in Chicago, and, you know, it was very queer-friendly. I was classmates with, like, the younger siblings of, you know, mildly famous people. It felt like I was on my way up to be as gay as I wanted to be. And then, like, I lost my scholarships because... I couldn't get the money to pay for the rest of school and I had to move back to Florida and then all of a sudden I was back in that same small town environment and I was living with my parents again. So all that freedom I thought was coming to me by being out of the house, I ended up back in the house within a year. And it's tough. It was tough because I wanted to do something expensive, like to go to film school back then anyway. I mean, it's it's easier now because everything's on computers, but back then you had to like, you had to shoot on film. Yeah, you had yeah. to everything was really technical. So you had to go to like either New York or LA or to some degree Chicago and, you know, basically be a starving artist for four years. And I was already starving. So I, you know, I couldn't make myself any poorer to go be an artist. So I just ended up back at home. But you were still there for almost a year. Yes. So yes. did you make any steps outwards? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, okay. Outward in that time, absolutely, yeah. I was, you know, I was living in the boys' dorm, obviously, but like, you know, it was a very like sexually free time, relatively speaking. This is great. This is still the '90s, so like, even when you were like the gay guy on the floor, you were, you were, you still had to be kind of like mm-hmm. a little something. You still had to, you know, peel it back a little bit for the straights, uh, just because of the times. But like, yeah, I like I had a taste of it. But I like, said, what was that like then? Like having that taste. It was great, and like I, and I'd have a lot of regret not fighting harder for it. But like I also like missed my family, and I was very much a small town kid. So there's a, and like my mother was very like manipulative. I don't think she did it on purpose. Mm-hmm. She didn't like having her one of her her favorite kid. Mine was her favorite kid. She didn't like having her favorite kid so far away. So you know we. We talked on the phone a lot, and she was like, yeah, you can always come home. And like, and then when like the financing sort of fell through, if I had had like, you know, 
a structure, even if they couldn't financially help me, if I had like someone who wasn't like sort of codependent at home mm-hmm. and been like, you know what, you can do it. You get a part-time job, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So I had someone that pushed me to make it work. I probably could have stayed, but because my mother was so codependent, and this is, I I sound like the quintessential like Southern fried homo right now. My mother was so codependent that she called me home and I had to like go go take care of Mama. Like that was that was it. That was like it. It sounds like a cliche because it is, <laughs> but it was also what happened. So. Were you out to your parents at all at this stage? No, no, they had no clue. Ah. They had, they never had a clue. Like my, like I said, I was soft out. Like I never made like a real attempt to hide it with any of my friends, except for like my very toxic straight male friends. Mm -hmm. And like with my younger siblings, I never made any real attempt to hide it because I, you know, whatever, like they're not going to say anything. They're living their own lives. But to my parents and to my older siblings, were basically my parents. They were the only people I was really closeted to. Ah. So what was it like then? And what do you remember from those times of being in Chicago and being out and free and then suddenly being back in Florida and not being any of those things? And not being like, oh man, I was angry. I was angry with my dad because it was largely his fault that my funding fell through. And I ended up, you know, going to the community college. And it was I was so personally disappointed because, like like I said earlier, I didn't want to be like everybody else. Mm-hmm. But everybody who didn't go the way to school went to the community college in town. We call it the 13th grade. But, like, after freshman year, I, I ended up in that community college. And it was like, oh, my God, it's all the asshole townies that I thought I would never have to see again. And they're here. And they haven't changed because it's, it's only like a year and a half later. Mm. So how could they have? It's like, oh, it's, it's you. Oh, you thought you were getting out. And like, no, we're all, we're all back in the same shitty southern town doing the same stuff that we had done, you know, same stupid pool bar that we'd always hung out at. It felt like I had this great change, and it lasted for like just a short amount of time, then I was right back where I started. And so did you go back into survival mode? I went back into survival mode. But it was also around this time, I ended up, like, that was for a year. I did the community college. And then I ended up going to school in Tampa nearby where things were a little freer. And then I got into art school, mm-hmm. right? And things got a little bit better. And I started really exploring my trans identity and, you know, having relationships with with men and different kinds of people. And by the time I got to senior year in college, I was already like kind of gay again, right? I was already, you know, feeling very queer. I was, I didn't identify as trans. I didn't know if I was trans. I knew I was something, but I didn't know if I wanted to live mm-hmm. my life as a different gender than what I was assigned at birth. But I, I knew that it was something I wanted to do. And then the new plan was, I was gonna, you know, finish my film degree, get to L.A., and then. This is so much a, a young 20-year-old's version of, a, of the world. I was going to make it in Hollywood within a year, whatever, and then oh, I could year. go be trans. less time than that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. easy. It's like they I – was, I was so talented. Of course they're going to they're gonna roll out the red carpet for me. I was going to sleep my way up. Oh, my God. I had so many opportunities. I was such a bumpkin. You have no idea. When I first got to L.A., 
every rich man in the city was just like rolling out the welcome mat for me, and I was just too dumb to realize. Oh, really? I could have slept my oh, way to the top, okay. but I was. Well, I, didn't, I was such oh, a no, great, great. I got no opportunities. You just squandered them. <laughs> I, was, I squandered them, which is probably worse. Like I had them, and I just didn't realize at the time. Oh my God, that that guy wanted me so bad, and I was just too damn dumb to realize that I could have worked that. I could have made that into something, but I didn't. I didn't know. I was, I was just a small town kid in a big city. I didn't know better. See, this is why it needs to be a subject at school. No, I, I shouldn't say that. Actually, mm-hmm. should I? But it needs to be. It needs to be taught somewhere. <laughs> but like to go from like the most conservative part of Florida, the most conservative part of one of the most conservative states, to move to Los Angeles mm-hmm. in a span of like six weeks to go from that to this other thing in the span of six weeks and then to be in West Hollywood and be doing a temp job at like the Pacific Design Center folding towels or whatever I was doing and have like this very rich, very gay man basically invite me to live in his house but, but, for free. What? <laughs> and I just didn't well, realize. It. I was like, oh, no, I'm fine. I have an apartment on the west side. Well, like, I didn't know. How clear could he make it? <laughs> he could not have made it any. I was just, I was that much of a hick. I was that much of a bunk, and I just didn't know. I just didn't know any better. I was just, oh, and, then years, and then years later, I'd be like, God damn it. I could have, I could have done that. I could have, I could have lived in this guy's house. Like beat him off, you know, every couple of days, and it'd been fine. I would have been fine. I would have lived. I would have lived in Beverly Hills, and I would have had the easiest job. Road not taken, my friend. Road not taken. Oh well, well, no point getting stuck on that now. Yes. So I'm going to ask you this. Tell me if you want to like don't want to talk about this because you might be bored of talking about this. Sure. You said you explored your trans identity and you Mm -hmm. weren't sure. When did you become sure? Like, how do you become sure? It's difficult. It's not that I wasn't sure. I was always sure. I was always sure I was something. I wasn't like a cisgender person. Uh-huh. I was always sure of that from like a very young age. But the problem was is that they made being trans, and it's still, it's still a humongous pain in the ass, but especially back then, everything about being trans was difficult. Mm-hmm. Like when I came out in 2015, I had no idea, you know, how easy it was to get hormones because... When I was growing up exploring hormones, you had to go into therapy for a year mm-hmm. to make sure you were, you know, okay with it. You had to, like, live as a woman for a year without hormones, basically to see if you were tough enough for it. And, like, by the time I came out in 2015, you had informed consent. You just declare yourself trans and be like, give me hormones. I'm an adult. I know what I'm doing. And they did. I didn't know that it was that easy by then, but when I was growing up, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Like, you had to basically make a spectacle out of yourself for a year and submit yourself to, like, rigorous psychological, you know, examination. It was expensive, and you had basically to cut yourself off from your family and everything else just to have the privilege of getting the hormones. And it was tough because, like, I'd hung out with other trans people, other trans women, and they were like, I couldn't live this way anymore. It was either this or suicide. And I was like, I don't know if... That's me. I don't know. Like I had learned, like we talked about earlier, I had learned this like defense mechanism of just going along to getting along. And I was like, you know what? I've been doing this my whole life. I could just be like a single confirmed bachelor my entire life and 
whatever and, you know, go fly off to, like, Canada and, like, have, you know, they had these conferences where, like, you know, trans women that were closeted, they could just go be trans for a week. Mm -hmm. And that was, like, a thing that, you know, in the 90s that you could do. And so I was like, oh, I could do that. It'd be, like, a nice little escape valve. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like that because a lot of that was just, like, kind of, like, fetishy stuff and, like, more, like, cross-dressing straight men. Yeah play acting and I didn't that wasn't my scene either so like I didn't want to do that so I felt like I felt like I was in this like weird little like crevice of like identity where like if I wanted to be an out trans woman they made it so difficult and if I wanted to be a closeted trans woman it was just it wasn't what I wanted it was just a bunch of like people who were into it for the sex Mm -hmm. the sexual aspects of it which is fine I don't begrudge anybody their turn-ons but, like, for me, it wasn't just that. Like, I didn't just want to, like, go dress up pretty and get laid. That's, mm-hmm. That is something I like to do. Don't get me wrong. But it, it wasn't the only component of it. Mm. But when you dress up, do you not, like, begrudge people from, like, smudging your makeup and stuff? Oh, sure, of course. But, like, sometimes that's fun. Is it? Sometimes it's good to get a little messy. I'd be like, I, I spent, like, half an hour on this. How long do you spend on makeup? Is I, it half an hour? Is it? I sp- <laughs> It used to be longer. I used to, it used to be an hour. Now I can do I can do a full face in about twenty five minutes. So like I've still you know, twenty five minutes. I'd be like, mm, it's, don't yeah, touch it's, me. It's still <laughs> yeah. It's still a while. It's still a while. I get it. I'd like, people yeah, if you know? I had to wash for them. Yeah, but that's a me thing. Sorry, that's not sure, what we're going to talk about. Sure, today. that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, it is really interesting the callbacks to what we've talked about already today. In the like, well, I've survived this long what's a month more yeah, what's a year yeah. more right and that's why i didn't come out till 2015 as trans because it's like because i had found a way to get along like i would have relationships with other bisexual people uh-huh. and like it was fine to be a little like something different because they were already predisposed to that whether they were men or women or whatever mm-hmm. they were already like okay with it and like because i had you know been in the arts I was already sort of plugged into like a community of people that that could be different. But like the trans thing was always like it was always a step up because you couldn't be insular. Like maybe you could do that in New York City. You could be insular because you could just live in a very trans friendly community. But by the time I moved to New York, insular wasn't wasn't part of my vocabulary anymore. I didn't want to be insular mm-hmm. by then. Cuz when I finally came out, I was out. Like, you know, fuck it. I'm out. I waited this long. I'm going to be as out as I can be at this point. And that's why, I, that's why I'm like a comedian. That's why I, you know, I'm a public person. That's why I didn't do any of those things until I transitioned because there was no going back at that point. Like I just, you know, hey, I'm out. I'm going to be out, out. What do you mean by that? Like, there, like at that point, by the time I had come out, I didn't want, like I said earlier, like in the years since I've kind of calmed back down to the person that I always was, but I still became like a, you know, a long-form comic performer. I still did, you know, 40 shows in Edinburgh and all about my trans experience. Like, I didn't want to be... I didn't want to have any options away from me anymore. I didn't want to, like, recede because of how I felt other people would be. Like, if I wanted to do something, then I was going to do it. If I wanted to be a comedian and talk about trans stuff, then I was going to do it. I was, you know, fuck what other people think. Mm -hmm. But again, if, if I also just want to be like a lady that goes to Target and not like make a big fucking deal about it, then that's also what I wanted. But those were all my choices to do that. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a defense mechanism. It wasn't anything. It wasn't me trying to like blend in anymore. It was just me 
choosing to live whatever life I wanted to lead. So prior to that transition, mm-hmm. you were apologetic? Or is that an oversimplification? Uh, yeah, maybe a little bit apologetic. Like, I mean, certainly something. Certainly not, like, flamboyant. Certainly not as ready to be out as possible. Like, being trans was always, like, a step up. Like, coming from, like, you know, living in L.A., it was easy to be, it was easy to be bisexual in L.A. Mm. It's, it's a bisexual city. Um, Designated by UNESCO, I heard. Yes, <laughs> of course, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And like it was, you know, going to art school and like being in like a creative community, it was easy to be like open sexually. But like even in those places, until relatively recently, even those places were still skeptical of trans identities, still unsure what to do with trans identities. Mm -hmm. Even in like 2012, we didn't like trans identities didn't necessarily feel safe in other queer spaces. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until like, you know, maybe Laverne Cox did like, you know, Orange is the New Black 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. right around the time I came out. Like I came out at like the height of like trans liberation. It was kind of a coincidence because I just happened to get a job in New York City at the same time. But like I remember like listening to like that like Against Me album that came out after Laura Jane transitioned mm-hmm. and like walking around, you know, Brooklyn with like True Trans Soul Rebel in my headphones and be like, yeah, fuck it, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna be a punk rock transgender woman in, in Brooklyn now. <laughs> But like, you know, before that, you know, no, I was, it was not that. And is there something in, and this is really cheesy, so shoot me down. Mm. Once you have done that really brave thing, nothing else is scary. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, that's true to some degree and it's it's not true to like, uh, like nothing will be as scary as coming out as trans. Uh Like nothing I ever do again will ever fill me with such conflict like I've literally done the hardest thing as far as like divulging to people now there could be much harder you know trials in life than just coming out Mm -hmm. like death and illness and like loss and injury whatever like stuff like that that can happen to a person that's beyond just revealing their identity but as far as like telling people who I am there nothing will ever be that much of a challenge and I think I, I have like this uh, like ongoing conversation with myself about, you know, now that I'm out, what do I do with my life? Like now that I've done the hard part, like what's the next, you know, 40, 50 years of my life going to be like mm. now that I'm out and everyone's like, Oh great. You're trans. And I got it on. Everyone cheered me on for like a year. And then everyone just moved on with their lives. Like, now what do I do? <laughs> like, like Everyone's very supportive at first. And they're like, okay, cool. Okay. We get it. Okay. <laughs> get it. You're, you're, we're, you're no longer that interesting. What now? That's exactly right. But like things will still be scary. I'll still have scary stuff to deal with in life. I'll still have, I'll still be put into uncomfortable mm-hmm. situations in my, in my existence and have to deal with them. That, that's not going to change. But like nothing, nothing ever again will be this difficult. Mm. So we are quite far into our conversation and we have not yet mm-hmm. talked about those bases in the town that yeah. we grew up in. So maybe we should remedy that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, let's talk about those lost spaces. So, yeah, why are they important to you? So, uh, to rewind a little bit, those lost spaces to me, when like to go back to that town where I grew up, before I was fully comfortable with being trans, before I had left Florida in like junior high and high school, there wasn't a lot of 
queer representation mm -hmm. in media and like as one of the queer kids in school, none of us were out. We all kind of understood it about each other, but like we were, all, we were none of us were out to anybody, even each other. So like the only thing that we had to look at physically as a, as a representation of out queerness were these two gay bars in town, one for gay men, one for lesbians. And like they were like these weird like urban legends because they were very much present. The bar for gay men was downtown and the bar for gay women was like way out in the woods. This tracks. <clears throat> it was yeah, exactly. It was very much the downtown for the for the queer guys and then out in the woods for the lesbians. And like you had to go down like this one freeway. There was like this position on the freeway. There's this point in the freeway where there was no real civilization. Like if you go further out, you get to where like the town comes back, and if you go the other direction, that's where the town is, right? Mm. But in the middle of that is this like stretch of woods, and there was this one bar out in the middle of nowhere, and you could see it driving down the freeway, and you're like, that's Dockside. Dykeside, as they called it colloquially. And like, I don't even know where the dock was. <laughs> like, it was just called Dockside. Oh, yeah. But like, that was the lesbian bar in town, and we all knew it. We would all like joke with each other, like we should go to, we should go to the dock side and see if the lesbians will beat us up. Like it was like a thing, and then like the green parrot was the gay bar, the gay male bar, and like you would drive downtown, and then you would see like this giant plastic green parrot, and you're like, oh my god, it's that's Roy's green parrot, that's the gay bar, and like if you would be driving and you would see men coming out of it, and like. Some of them were okay with it, but for the most part, they were just trying to, like, you know, yeah. hide their faces while they were coming in. Because everyone knew that Roy's Green Parrot was the gay bar. And, like, it's difficult for... I, I, I know it's a challenge to talk about a space that I've never stepped foot in, or two spaces I've never stepped foot in. But for one thing, I don't think that town has two gay bars anymore. Like, that town's obviously still there, and it's much bigger now. It has grown mm -hmm. since, you know, 1993. But, like... I'm going to say, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that, you know, the queer representation in that town's probably gone backwards. Mm. I'm pretty sure there's not even one gay bar in that town right now. I'm pretty sure. I could be wrong. I don't live there anymore. But, like, I can't imagine conservative florists sustaining a gay bar and a lesbian bar in those towns without them coming out with pitchforks. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't know I'm laughing. But it, it is, like, darkly funny. But, like, back then, you could have, like, a lesbian bar... And it could operate, like, clandestinely because, for one thing, people didn't even really understand what lesbians even really did. So, like... I still don't. Yeah. yeah it's, it's <laughs> I mean, like, I've had, I've had some experience in this matter. It's, it can be fun in its own right. But, like, like, you would drive down on your way out of town and, like, that's, that's Dockside. You would drive downtown and be like, that's the Green Parrot. And, like, within your little friend group, people would... They would laugh and like tease you. Oh, you're gonna go to Roy's? You're gonna go to the Green Parrot? You're gonna go get a boyfriend at the Green Parrot? And like it became like this teasing thing where like if you were a little bit effeminate, they were gonna send you to the Green Parrot. If you were a little bit mask, you were, you know, you were gonna go to Dockside if you were a girl. Like, yeah. This was like punishment. Like if you were if you're a little bit outside the norm, they were just gonna send you to prison at these gay bars. Like, oh, no, please don't. Oh, no. Please don't send me to the only queer place in town. And so what did those spaces represent to you? Uh, it, it evolved over time. Like, the spaces represented to me as, like, something 
almost aspirational. Like, I didn't want to go to those spaces. Because for one thing, I already felt I'd already evolved beyond the town. Like, they already felt too provincial to me. But, like, it was just an example of, like, there's a world out there that's not this. Even in this town, even in this conservative town, there's enough queer people Uh to sustain the business of two bars. There's enough of us out here hiding in whatever pockets that we can find to sustain two bars, and that's in this shitty place. That's here. That's in this terrible town in Florida. What do I have to look forward to when I get into the real world, into this world that's outside of this place? As like, as like a symbol of like the world waiting for me, it was great. It was like, it was fantastic. But as like aesthetic structures, I, I thought they were very tacky. Like it was, it was already a very judgmental gay by then. I was always like, oh, they're little <laughs> shitty bars. Like Dockside was basically a hole in the wall. And like Roy's was, um, other than the parrot itself, you couldn't tell it apart from any other bar downtown. It's so interesting to me, though, to hear you talk about yourself as being separate from the queer community in that town. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And, like, more than anything else, I just wanted to get out of town. And I think that's that's not an unusual queer thing to have. That's not an unusual queer thing to feel at all. Like, you just want to get out of town. And, like, to a large degree, even queer spaces within the town felt... Like something I didn't necessarily want because they were just going to connect me to the town. Like, yes, I wanted to explore my queer identity in like this safe space and be and be happy. And maybe if I were a little more courageous or even just like a little older, Mm -hmm. if I were a little older and I could have enjoyed those spaces while, you know, they were in their prime when I was old enough to go, then that'd probably be a different story. But like I didn't feel like I necessarily wanted to go. I felt like there was better opportunities elsewhere. And like the queer community that I had experienced in the town, such as it was, was also was all like me. It was a closeted queer community. Yeah. And I'm trying to think about my own experiences here and and kind of relate to you. And I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Because something's better than nothing, right? Something's better than nothing. And I like I said, I think if I were maybe a little older I would have gone to those places and, like, found value in them. Like, now, like, now for me now, as who who I am now, even though the fact that I would never step foot in those places, I feel nostalgia for them. I wish I had, especially Dockside, which to me is, like, the Green Parrot. Like, in my mind, I can remember it. It looked very much like any other gay bar Mm -hmm. that I had been in, and I've been in a lot. So I feel like if I'd gone into Roy's, it would feel very homey. It would feel like a lot of gay spaces I've been to. But, like, Dockside, I feel like it was, like, this lost artifact. It was this lesbian bar in the middle of the woods. Like, what the, what the hell? Like, how, how, how could I have missed out on that? Like, that's cool. Like, back then I didn't think it was – I got terrible taste back then. Like, I don't mind, you know, shitting on my own, like, you know, my own small-mindedness. Like, I was very much a small-minded, you know – like, I very much thought I was better than the town. But that, that's not reflective of the town. That's reflective of me. Uh-huh. That's just me being, like, you know, a small-town little art – kid that thought he was better than everybody else like that's just what and I just misgendered myself because I'm so divorced from that person like I remember this person as like a separate identity a separate entity even like I don't mean to like you know shit on the town that hard because that was just my own like provincial 16 year old mind Mm. just saying that the rest of the world's gonna be so much better when I get out of this town 
the rest of the world isn't necessarily so much better. It's the rest of the world. Like, it's, there's trade-offs to everything. I wish I had gone to Dockside. I wish I had been in there. Like, I I want to write a play about Dockside. I've, I've been working on, like, a thing where... <gasps> Can we make it a musical? I, like, I'll do the songs. I would, yes, 100%. Okay. 100%. Absolutely. <laughs> we can make it a musical. Like I am, like it's why I wanted to do this episode. It's not because I, like, I hated those spaces. Like maybe back then, I then I didn't really understand them. But like, I feel nostalgia for them, especially for Dockside, because I missed out on something that doesn't exist anymore. Like I don't, in my own like small mindedness, my own closetedness, and then my own like snobbiness. Like I was coming, coming and going. I was both too afraid to go there, and I thought I was too good for the place anyway. Mm-hmm. So like. Coming from two different directions, I deprive myself of this unique experience that doesn't exist anymore. It's not there. And, like, I know I seem to be making this the theme of today's conversation, so mm-hmm. sorry if it feels like I'm just wedging this in. No. Was any of your response to do with survival? A hundred percent, yeah, very much survival. And most of it was probably some form of survival, even to a point where I don't even realize it. Like, when you remember something that happened 20 years ago, it's, like, it's easy to, like, imprint your adult mind onto it. Yeah, yeah. And all your experiences since then, yeah. Yeah. It's really easy to, like, forget how you really felt back then. And I try to do that. Well, there's that thing of, like, the common, I'm not like other queers, kind of, in in inverted comma thing, which I think a lot of younger people can go through in this like oh yeah I might be gay or I might be trans or I might be this or that mm-hmm. but I'm not like everyone else I'm just like me and and this yeah. kind of exceptionalism yeah. that we annoy we, ourselves when with. we're young definitely and like I think we get that in the culture today with like this almost like puritanical streak of like young queers where they don't want kink at pride oh, yeah. and they don't want to be and the other way, they don't be too this, don't be too that, because like I don't, I don't identify purely sexual. So why would I want to have like you know leather men at, at Pride? That's not part of my gay experience. Like you know whatever, like that's fine, but that's also part of our history. Those leather men paved the way for us to be who we are, and we shouldn't forget that. And plus, some people just like that, and like why wouldn't mm-hmm. they? Like you know, let them let them be gay in the way that they wish to be. And, like, I think that provincialism, that, like, weird, like, backward exceptionalism you get when you're young was definitely on my mind back then. Like, I was meant for the big city. I was meant for Los Angeles, Chicago, New York. And I've lived in all those places. And, like, yeah, I love them. But, like, I also wish I had gone to Dockside. Mm. I also wish that I had been a part of this world that is gone now. It doesn't exist anymore. And it will never exist. Like, there will never be... There will never be another lesbian bar in the woods in Central Florida like that. That is a period in history that is gone, and we can never have it back because the world is different now. Mm. You can't have a bar that exists under the radar because no one really got lesbians. Yeah. Because people get them now. People, like, you go to Florida now, they're, like, even the asshole straights are very aware of queer identities. Like, they've done their homework. They know exactly what, you know, what happens in a lesbian bar. It's, it's a lot of, like, feelings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a lot of feelings being shared <laughs> over cheap beer. Um, and I, want, I wish I had that. Because, like, when I go to, like, lesbian bars in, in New York, like Ginger's in, in Brooklyn, I loved Ginger's in Brooklyn. Like, it was such a cool space to have a bar 
and talk. And like, I see like a lot of my gay friends and it was great. And I loved those spaces. And I, I didn't mind feeling provincial and like having that community. Like I wish I had been a kind of person who wasn't so comfortable with bottling myself up. I wish I hadn't been such a snob that I wouldn't deign to lower myself to go to a small town gay bar because I felt I was too good for it. I can't win for losing with my own attitudes mm. either. Either I'm too afraid to look too gay or I'm too afraid to like be too small town. Like I didn't want I didn't, whatever they were selling back then I didn't want any of it. <laughs> so like I deprived myself of a cool experience I wish I had done and I can't get it. I can get close to it. I can I can go to a small town bar and I can even probably, you know, hang out with small town queers and there may even be queer bars in in these small towns now. But, but not next to a dock in the middle of the woods, right? Not next to a dock in the middle of the woods <laughs> and not in the 90s back when people didn't understand trans identities, back when people you know, were barely aware of queer women. So let's play a game then. Mm-hmm. Let's say you jumped in a time machine and you did get to go mm-hmm. back. 100%, I would, yeah. And you were in the car park, because I'm assuming there was a car park, because how else would people get there? Yes. You were yes. in the car park for uh, Dockside, and you were about to go in. What would the perfect night be? The perfect night at Dockside for me would be I'd go in and sit at the bar. It wouldn't be too loud. I'd go in and sit at the bar. It'd be like a good crowd. And would Constant Craving be playing on the jukebox? Constant craving would definitely be on the jukebox. I might actually pay for it. So if if it wasn't already playing, I would make sure it would be playing. And I'm sure the lesbians would be like, oh, come on, you're being cheesy. <laughs> but like, but like, I think it would be very similar to like my favorite nights at Ginger's. I would see people, because if they weren't my actual friends, they were people that would become my friends for the night. And not necessarily in a sexual way, but possibly. And like, mostly they're... Just to, just to sit down and to see queer people being comfortably queer, but in a way that I, I have never seen, in a way that is small town, in a way that is blue collar. You know, they go out there and they have like their, you know, their trucks are 20 years old and they're beat up and they have dents in them and like their boots are dirty because they had to work all day and like, you know, they get dolled up and I'm talking about, you know, in plural form, not necessarily like non-binary form, but they, you know, the, the femmes get dolled up and the, and the, you know, the more mask of center lesbians will, you know, will sit there and appreciate them. And like, it'll be this version of queerness that is Southern and small town. And I can piece all of those things together in my head because I've been in Southern small towns and I've been in plenty of queer spaces, but I've never been in them all at the same Mm -hmm. time. And in my head, I have to take those components and build them in my imagination and I, I think I can do it. It may not be completely accurate. It may be, it may have been very different than what my imagination is, but like, it would be like, yes, we're being queer and we're hanging out and having a good time, but the music on the jukebox is a little more country. The conversations are a little bit more about, you know, your favorite barbecue restaurant down the street and how the electric company has been fucking you over because the tree fell on your street the other day. And I wish I had had that. Mm. I wish I had had a queer space in my hometown that was also my hometown. I've had plenty of queer spaces. I consider LA my hometown now. I've been in plenty of queer spaces here. 
But in my real, actual hometown, I never had a queer space to be queer in, to be comfortably queer in, I should say. I had plenty of, like, parties and things like that. But just a, a neighborhood bar? No, never had it. I mean, I don't know if I deprived myself because, again, I was too young, and by the time I left and came back, Dockside had already closed. But if I had been a little older and I had been, like, just a little less of a snob and maybe a little braver, too, I would have loved it, I think. Do you have any memories of Dockside or maybe clubbing from your own queer scene that you want to share? Well, if you do, why not get in touch? I want to create the biggest online record of people's memories and stories, but I need your help in order to do that. Go to lostspacespodcast.com, find the section, share a lost space, and then tell me all about what it is you got up to. You can also reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where my handle is Lost Spaces Pod. Although I'm not really sure about Twitter. Should I just delete that account? I kind of want to jump off that burning inferno of a shit pile. Anyway, find out more about Gina by visiting her website, which is ginabloom.com, or following her on Instagram or Twitter, where her handle is Gina Bloom. But maybe not on Twitter for very long. Who knows what the hell is going on? If you enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate if you took the time to subscribe, leave a review on your podcast platform, or just tell another person or people or a group of people that you think might be interested in giving it a little listen to. My name is Kay Anderson and you have been listening to Lost Spaces. Lost Spaces.